It began in Starksville, Mississippi, a college town about 125 miles from Jackson. A woman named Latisse Fisher, already a mother of three, had given birth to a stillborn. But when paramedics arrived at her house that night, they decided something was off. From the moment they arrived at her house, they alleged, at least in the media, publicly, and even in, in other places, that they found, they found the scene suspicious. There was an investigation, a grand jury, and about a year later, Fisher was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. What's crazy about it is that the evidence against her amounted to a test that dates back more than 400 years and what investigators could find on her phone. The searches, the text messages, the emails, the kind of innocuous stuff you do on your phone that you never think could be used against you. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, as we teeter on the threshold of a post-Roe world of possible widespread abortion bans, everything we thought we knew about women's reproductive rights could change, and our digital world will need to change with it. Location data, those fitness apps, that ovulation tracker, now we need to think of them as potential threats that could make you a target in ways they never have before. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Lori Bertram Roberts first heard about Fisher's arrest from Facebook. Um, I get a Facebook message. It's not even a phone call. I get a Facebook message with a link to the story with Latisse's mugshot on the front of the story. If you Google the mugshot, it's heartbreaking. It captures a woman in an oversized orange prison shirt who looks like she's just stopped crying long enough to pose for the picture. There's one of those police measurement tapes behind her on the wall. She's 63 inches tall, but looks even smaller. If you're not moved by her mugshot, like just the visible pain and anguish on her face, um, I don't know what to say about you as a human. Um, I was just so disturbed by that picture. The mugshot and the story made national headlines, and Roberts found herself in the middle of the case. Latisse Fisher declined to talk, but she agreed to let Roberts tell her story. What does it look like wrapping around support for this family, right? Roberts has worked with a variety of organizations like the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund and the Yellowhammer Fund. They offer women like Fisher support and legal advice. Not just getting her an attorney, not just getting her legal assistance, but making sure that her kids were supported while she was locked up trying to get her out as fast as possible because... The grand jury indictment against Latisse Fisher accuses her of a particular kind of murder. 
They said Baby Fisher wasn't stillborn, but instead was killed evincing a depraved heart, which is actually a legal term. It essentially says that Fisher showed indifference to a human life. But the more Roberts looked into the case, the more concerned she became, because it appeared to hinge on two very disparate things. The first was a test that dates back to the 17th century, something called a float test. It's literally from the 1600s. It's an invalid, non-scientific test. And it's controversial. The float test is performed by placing lung tissue into water and observing whether this tissue floats or sinks. An airless lung, one that has never taken in air, allegedly sinks, and a lung that floats is seen as an indication of at least one breath. It all sounds bizarrely like the test they used in witch trials in the 17th century. You know, where they'd tie someone up they thought was a witch, they'd throw them in the water, and if they sank to the bottom, they were human, and if they floated, well, they were witches. The lung float test? People thought that up around the same time. It's one of the things that's used to prosecute people in stillbirth cases for home birth. So it's one of the things that if you're in the birth justice community, you know. And the second thing the case hinged on was Fisher's phone. When she was arrested, the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation seemed super focused on her cell phone. And as she's leaving, they're like, make sure you have your phone so you can call your husband when you're done. She's like, okay. So she gets her phone, she gets in the SUV. They drive downtown, lead her into an interrogation room, and then it becomes clear why they keep asking her about her phone. They have a warrant to search it. Um, and she tried to resist that, but they were like, we'll hold you here until you give, you, give us your password. And then they went through her search history and they were like, she said they were giddy when they found it. The it in this case was her search history. It indicated that at some point during her pregnancy, she had searched for abortion pills. There was no indication that she'd bought any or taken any, but investigators said the search itself went to motive and intent. It suggested she didn't want this baby. The case was eventually dismissed, but it raised the specter of something everyone is talking about now. Could law enforcement do what they did with Latisse Fisher and use your data dust against you if abortion becomes illegal in the future? Researcher Zach Edwards says they could. Your phone is the snitch. It's a snitch in your pocket. And every app that you download, the permissions that you give that app, all of the other companies that are integrated into that app also get those same permissions. And, and that's where the trust fall happens. In 2015, a couple of years before Latisse Fisher was arrested, an executive at a mobile marketing agency had an idea. His agency had several anti-abortion groups as clients, and he offered them a unique service. He said he could send targeted ads to women who were actually sitting in Planned Parenthood clinics. Even back then, you could send messages to someone based on their location. So the agency sent messages urging pregnant women sitting in the clinic to be informed and get the facts first. The ads also helpfully included links to anti-abortion group websites. Those types of ads have been happening for years. And that's easy peasy. Zach Edwards is an expert in data brokers. Those are the people who package your data and sell it to marketers and advertisers. And he says that kind of location targeting is pretty straightforward. The concept of just being like, I have 100000 a month 
and I want to target around this circle, a half mile circle. Yeah, so you may get some of the residential people around there. Who cares? You're going to definitely get that abortion clinic too. Blame the phones we carry and the apps we download. They reveal where we are, for how long, our interests, our demographics, who we're with. Lots of things we don't think twice about because we probably don't think it'll ever be public. And brokers can vacuum all that up, package it, and create anonymous profiles based on our daily routines. And then they sell it to people. It's called pattern data. There's at least half a dozen data brokers that are selling pattern data at the moment. Um, safe graph. They figure out that someone is a woman of childbearing age or that she recently visited an abortion clinic. People can be tracked and traced and harassed. After the break, we'll show you exactly how it works. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Until earlier this month, anyone could just call up the homepage of a data broker called Placer AI and type in the words Planned Parenthood. And on your screen, the location of all the Planned Parenthood clinics in the U.S. would appear. Click again, and you could see the pattern data about who visited. Edwards showed me exactly how it works, and it was crazy how easy it was. And let me get my screen sharing going on here. Um, on his screen is the Placer AI homepage. On the top is a search bar, and he navigates to a previous search he'd done. He had been trying to see if he could track someone from a Planned Parenthood clinic to their home. And on his screen, it looks like one of those satellite images from Google Maps. He zooms in on three houses set in a velvety green field. So right now, we are looking at a map of a rural location where one of the three houses on this screen visited a Planned Parenthood. So how do you know that? So when you have access to the system, you're able to search a property name and then immediately you will be shown details about where people started before they came to that location. So you could see where people were right before going to the clinic. And if you zoom into the starting point, and it happens to be a house, well, you've probably found where they live. And you can also parse different details about the audience. So. This is a data broker, so they are going to have demographic data and other data that's available to layer on top of this location data. Demographic data, like whether a woman may live there, which could explain who might have been at Planned Parenthood. Or perhaps a doctor lives there, and that person might be performing abortions. And if the person looking through all this data happens to be sitting in one of those states that might ban abortion if Roe is overturned, you have to consider the possibility that this kind of search would give them all they need to call the police and report someone they suspect of having or performing an abortion. It's uh, a choose-your-own non-compliant data adventure brought to you by big tech and basically allowed because we have no laws to speak of. In a statement, Placer AI said that aside from a few researchers, 
it has no record of anyone doing this kind of search. But anyone could have done it right up until earlier this month, when a story in Motherboard revealed how easy it was. Placer AI tweaked its search engine in response, but it hasn't removed the data. So while you can't automatically search the phrase Planned Parenthood anymore, if you were determined, with a little digging, you could still find it. Placer AI said it has an ongoing effort to, quote, remove all sensitive places from our system. You just search for something else. You add a word or two. You remove a word or two. Um, and that process to just refine your own query. So it isn't hard to imagine that in some place like Texas, where private citizens are incentivized to report abortions through a kind of bounty program, this would be pretty popular. This is the dystopic scenario where um, everyone is a sheriff, you know, uh, I am the law type of stuff. This is um, the snitch in your pocket is the snitch next door that wants to get a $10,000 bounty that costs them $1.50 to buy your pattern data. All of this gets more troubling if you're doing these searches in rural areas, where it's just easier to pinpoint who is who. Part of the problem is that all this data collection and its sale to others are minimally regulated. And while there is some momentum building for some kind of data protection law here in the U.S., that could take years. In the meantime, the things you can do yourself typically involve your delete button. Raven Fugit lives in Tennessee, and until recently, she was one of those people who had downloaded all those health apps on her phone. I've used um, Garmin fitness tracking apps. I've used the Samsung fitness tracking, Apple fitness tracking. I used to use um, Flow. The Flow app tracks when you're having cramps or other period symptoms. And another one called like My Cycle, I think, or My Chart, and I used it to track the variations and by period as it came and went to try and seek proper contraception. It can predict ovulation. And then if you were to become pregnant, you can even add that information to the app too. You can export the data and take it to your doctor. So if you were to become pregnant and you were having high blood pressure or something like that, the app tracks that and you could take it to your doctor and let them see it. Sounds simple enough and super helpful. But Fugit says she now sees it through a different lens. But if you're someone who has no intention of keeping the pregnancy and need to seek termination, and they have that information through an app, they might be able to track you down and use it against you. So are those still on your phone? They are not. I, uh, as soon as I get wind of the potential overturn, I deleted the data and deleted the apps to try and make sure that none of my information was there because the fear of someone trying to see that data and use it against me somehow is not something that I'm interested in. And we talked to her about that before Motherboard came out with another story that suggested she was exactly right to worry. It reported on a company called Narrative that lets anyone sign up and purchase information related to the users of specific apps. The company has been offering data from users who say they downloaded period tracking apps. While the data does not include information harvested from the app itself, it does provide a list of devices that have installed the app, which means it could probably identify users like Raven Fugit. 
And if this seems hypothetical, ask the Catholic priest who was outed last year after a Catholic news site was able to analyze data on Grindr, the gay dating app. People are actually using app data to target others. I sound, I feel like I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but this is all stuff that's verified. Like this isn't stuff that like Lori says, like I'm not no, no big tech guru. This is all stuff that I had to learn because of the work I do. That's Lori Roberts again, the person who helped Latisse Fisher with her case in Mississippi. And she says, even if you take steps to protect yourself digitally, the weakest link might not be the technology. As with most tech issues, the biggest problem is probably of the human variety. I want to stress right now, not just that you erase the digital evidence and that you use a VPN and that you use stuff like Signal and that you, you know, that you use these things to protect yourself digitally, but also close your mouth. This is Click Here. Welcome back to an occasional Click Here feature we call Three Questions. The idea behind it is simple. We find smart people who are thinking about cyber and intelligence in new ways, and then we get them to talk about it. Today's guest is Oren Kerr. My name is Oren Kerr. I'm a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also an expert on computer crimes and cybersecurity, and literally wrote the book on computer crime law. We had some questions about hackers, specifically the white hat kind. Last week, the Department of Justice announced it would no longer prosecute researchers who hack into systems to try to make them safer. Before the announcement, hackers, even those acting in, quote, good faith, could be prosecuted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That's a law from the 1980s. And so this is basically, it's the anti-hacking statute, but it's written pretty broadly. And so trying to figure out just what it means has been something that the courts have struggled with. And that's kind of part of the problem is nobody quite know what it covers. I asked her if security researchers who are hacking into networks in good faith are being prosecuted now. Not that many people are charged under the statute. It's less than 100 every year. I don't know of any cases where a good faith security researcher was charged, but the challenge is that there was certainly a lot of hacking by folks that said, you know, I'm doing this for a good reason. I'm doing this in order to test the security of a network. And then, you know, the, the argument was, well, you, you really shouldn't do that because you're going to get prosecuted for that. That's a crime. And so this is, I, I take it, the Justice Department is saying, listen, we're not going to go after the folks that are engaged in good faith security uh, research. Right. And then do you think that's going to be hard to prove that you're a good faith person as opposed to a bad faith person? This is a great question. So this would be something that typically would be resolved by the lawyer for the person being investigated. So let's say you engage in some computer intrusion and you're saying, oh, this is for good faith computer security reasons. And the government says, well, we're not so sure of that. Your lawyer could go and make a, an argument to the prosecutor who's thinking of charging the case and say, you shouldn't bring this case because I fall within the policy. If it turns out the prosecutor thinks you don't fall within the policy, they can bring charges. And the Justice Department's policy is not a legal ground for you to get out of the charges. So if they disagree, the charges go forward. Is there a downside to this new policy? 
I think the downside is that it may be misinterpreted. So I'm a little bit worried that the nuanced written policy is going to be heard as it's okay to hack if you've got a good reason. <laughs> and that's not what the policy is. Um, and so I'm a little worried that there, there are folks that are going to you know, engage in harmful activity because they mishear what the policy is. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see if that actually happens or not. But that's a, a slight concern I have going forward. That was UC Berkeley law professor Oren Kerr, and we spoke about last week's Department of Justice advisory that it would no longer prosecute, quote, good faith hacking under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. This is Click Here. Here are the big cyber and intelligence stories from the past week. The U.S. Department of Justice is beefing up how it tracks ransomware actors in an effort to claw back more of the money they're stealing. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco kicked off an international virtual currency initiative that aims to coordinate law enforcement. This initiative will allow for more joint international law enforcement operations, more eyes uh, from multiple law enforcement agencies around the world to follow the money through the blockchain. It will also foster, we hope, responsible regulation and anti-money laundering requirements to root out the abuse of these technologies. Monica spoke last week at an Institute for Security and Technology event, where she also unveiled a new international cyber operations liaison to... Basically up the tempo of international operations against top-tier cyber actors, including arrests, extraditions, asset seizures, and working together to dismantle infrastructure. In recent weeks, ransomware groups have targeted universities, media giants, and even threatened to overthrow Costa Rica's government. Speaking of ransomware gangs, the Conti Group appears to be hanging up its keyboards. They officially took down much of their infrastructure last week. Analysts at the threat intelligence company Avintel say the group has shuttered its victim data blog, where they posted stolen data, and its ransomware infrastructure has disappeared too. But what about that $20 million ransom Conti asked the Costa Rican government for? Avintel says they think it's the group's last hurrah. And finally, the UK government has leveled a $9.4 million fine against facial recognition giant Clearview AI. It's also ordered the company to stop collecting information about UK residents and delete the information on UK residents it already has. Clearview has built a database of more than 20 billion pictures by scraping them from social media sites in the public web. Privacy groups have cried foul because Clearview hasn't asked for permission to do that. The announcement from the UK comes a week after ClickHere interviewed Clearview's CEO, Wanton Tat, about a settlement the company reached in this country with the ACLU and the state of Illinois. They had similar privacy concerns. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis, and it was edited by Karen Duffin, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record Media, and we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Tumplereston. We'll be back on Tuesday. And since you stayed until the end of the credits, 
a little something extra from Lori Bertram Roberts. This is a true story. I had a, a reporter contact me from overseas, right? And, and they go to text me and I text them back on Signal. And they said, oh my goodness, you use Signal? I said, yeah, why? And they said, the only contacts we ever have that have Signal are in war zones. <laughs> I said, well, what the hell do you think is abortion rights work in the U.S.? Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.